in the past, you know, words like graduation or doing your finals, they're all words which, which suggest you, you stop learning at a certain point and then you, you're ready for the working life. And, and what I see, I think even in the pandemic that, that become much more fluid is, you know, I believe more in long life learning as a given combined with long life working, family life, private life, interests, which should be more fluid. Hi, I'm David Green, and this is the final episode, episode five of series 16 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard Martin van Beck, HR Director for Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg at ING, speaking about the shift from a learn, work, retire approach to careers to a model of lifelong learning. To encourage lifelong learning and talent fluidity across the organisation, taking an employee-centric approach is vital, in Martin's opinion. HR should focus more on the employee journey, the employee experience, and less on the responsibilities and confines of rigid traditional L&D roles. In HR, and you know, even after the Ulrich model, we, we still stuck to learning specialists, you know, all those. And we need that expertise, don't, so don't get me wrong. But employees, I don't, th- don't care. You know, they want to be developed. They want to make a career. And, and which HR you know, stamp we put on that is completely unrealistic. Ir- you know, that's all internal organization. So I think from HR, when we talk about talent and talent fluidity, we have to start thinking, okay, what are the journeys employees go through? I think there is a challenge for HR to start organizing themselves in a different way in that direction as well. Throughout the episode, Martin and I discuss how organizations can promote a lifelong learning approach to work by encouraging and supporting employees to reinvent their skill sets every three to five years. We also discuss the power of using skills data to fuel talent fluidity. And finally, we talk about the business value and societal value of measuring skills proficiency without depending on traditional qualifications and educational experience. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Martin van Beck, HR Director for Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg at ING to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Martin. It's great to have you on. Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to you and your role at ING? Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. And, and great to, to, uh, to be here. Uh, so I joined ING, I think, five and a half years ago, uh, responsible for uh, the three countries you just mentioned, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. Um, before that, worked in Farsooming and, and Medtech, but always have been an HR guy. So changing industries throughout my career, but always have been in HR. And I'm calling today from The Hague um, in the Netherlands, um, where uh, well, I still work from home as, uh, as the majority of the people in Holland and where we hope to go in hybrid mode in, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been an interesting time, hasn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm still predominantly working from home, been into the office in London a few times. But uh, but yeah, and it's been an interesting time for HR, hasn't it? I mean, as an HR director for nearly half of ING's uh, workforce, it must have been a, a pretty pretty tumultuous 20 months. No, it, it was. And it still is, because I think now the, the next move to hybrid is, is the new challenge. But I think, you know, if I look back, and it, it's, it's what you say, it's 18 months, and, and what we have achieved and how quickly we digitalized and changed, you know, key things in our, in our operating models, 
uh, is impressive. Yes, I think we, we now do things we, we didn't thought were possible a couple of months or a year or two years ago, uh, and it becomes normal. So it has been hard work by, by I think, all my colleagues um, in, in all, the, all, all the countries, but it also has been satisfying. And I hope that we, we keep a little bit the good things from, you know, this more digital space. Uh, but also, you know, sometimes I just look forward again to be face to face with some people, but also see a lot of benefits. It's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, we've had a few guests on the show Heather McGowan being one that, that's, that's talked about how the pandemic has fast forwarded the future of work by five years. And I don't know if that if you're feeling that in, in your role in, in, in your company. Yeah, I think we see the same. Eh? So, you know, what we, you know, especially in the, in the beginning of the pandem- pandemic, you know, everybody had to work from home. So we, we had to, you know, all, the full HR portfolio had to be digitalized. All our training, onboarding is digital, getting people starting digital. Um, and, you know, we digital bank, so, you know, we bit a front runner, but we were not there yet where we are today. And we accelerated. Yeah, so I think, and, and a lot of things we do differently, onboarding will continue to be digital. Majority of learning will continue to be digital. Or agile ceremonies, half of them will be digital. And, and we didn't even think about doing those things digital two, three years ago. No, no, it's interesting. It, it leads in quite nicely to, to what we're going to talk about now around learning, um, which I know is one of your passions. You know, so it, in your view, how, how the relationship, how is the relationship between work and learning evolving? Um, I know from uh, from our previous conversation, you're not a big believer in the learn, work, retire model. You know, what's what's the alternative in your view? In, in the past, you know, words like graduation or doing your finals, they're all words which, which suggest you, you stop learning at a certain point and then you, you're ready for the working life. And, and what I see, and I think even in the pandemic that, that become much more fluid is, you know, I believe more in long life learning as a given combined with long life working, family life, private life, interests, which should be more fluid. And, and what do I mean with that is that, of course, at some point you, you, take your education, you do your master's or your bachelor's, and you start to work. But I think we have to probably reskill and upskill ourselves in our lives five to six times because working life is, 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 you know, 40 years or something. And in those periods, you know, the economy continues to change, the world changes. So we have to upskill and and reskill ourselves. And, And the question is, you can do that during your work, but you can also take a sabbatical. And I think, you know, my grandparents lived in the Dutch coal, worked in the Dutch coal mines, and they stopped working. They went with pension when they were early 50. I think now in the Netherlands and most European countries, it's, it's mid-60s that goes up a little bit every year. So how, how do you assure you stay fit, vital, and, and, and around that age? And I think so combining you know, sabbaticals, upskilling, reskilling, education, working, family life has to become more fluid. Um, which also asks completely different of how you look at work. Stepping up the career ladder, sometimes going maybe a little bit more flatter because you want to focus on your family and, and things uh, or, or, or learn a new profession and then go back again. And, and so I think we, we have to look completely different at careers and how that integrates with, with life and working. Yeah, and if we think, I mean, you know, things are changing so fast. I mean, as an argument, they've always changed so fast, but they seem to be changing even faster now. I mean, obviously, we've, we've talked about how the pandemic has, has really accelerated things. But even prior to the pandemic, if we think that 
you know, at Davos every year, they've been talking about the future of work. They've been talking about the impact of automation on society, on organizations and, and everything else. And obviously, we'll talk a little bit about how that's impacting the banking industry in a minute. You know, and then we see that some of the, the research that the likes of the World Economic Forum are, are publishing saying, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but by 2025, something like 80 million jobs will be effectively automated, but they'll be replaced by 90 million new jobs. Um, so, you know, a bit like every other industrial revolution, potentially we'll have more workers than, than, we, than we had previously. However, it's, it's, it's all about, it seems to be all about skills now. And I know that you're seeing, I think, a, a shift from, from, from jobs to skills, which I think talks nicely to your, you know, what you were saying around lifelong learning being so important. Yeah, for, for you know, what you describe for me is, is learning agility. Huh? How do we have a mindset of, of learning agility? Where, where I fully agree, I think for me, skills are the basics. So it's, we, we move back to skills. What, what can someone actually do? And from those skills, what new skill sets can you develop? Yeah, and I think skills are measurable, they're they learnable. You probably need a, a couple of, as I just said, probably you have to reskill yourself five, six times during your whole career. So get, get a new set of skills. And, and for tech professions, that can be, you know, a new coding language, uh, but it can be other professions, you know, and let me give a, an example. You know, my sister in this pandemic, she, uh, she started, she was a hair hairdresser so she she worked in that and and those jobs a lot of people lost their jobs because we couldn't go to the hairdressers etc etc so she unfortunately you know lost her job but you know what i'm very proud of in two weeks she found another job and what happened is she says what do i actually like about my job what are the skills with with which i'm good at and that was was not doing the hair it was more talking with the customers make them feel comfortable the social aspect of the job so now she works in home care and, and does exactly the, this, exactly the same, taking care of people, you know, making their life a little bit more easier, have that chat, helping them as well with a couple of things. So for me, that, that is a very simple example where someone, there is a skill set and how do you, exp, you know, explore that skill set to do a different job. Eh? So in all old-fashioned HR systems, you go from one function to another, but the skill set is all, almost the same. And and you can see that everywhere, you, you know, we also see that in banking. And, and you know, to, to build a little bit on that, in, in the beginning of the crisis, uh, we, we, a lot of our branches were closed. Yeah? So those people were sitting at home and we were seeing another part of the business, which is called KYC, Know Your Customer, where there was a lot of work. And, and then we, a lot of people said, well, you know, I want to work. I want to develop myself further. And we looked how we could upskill and reskill those people who you know, worked in the branches which were close to other jobs, which they could relatively quickly move into. And where there was work, which, you know, has a future, you know, those jobs will be there at least for a couple of years. And then, of course, they have to reskill again. And it happened voluntarily. It happened because people were eager to learn something new and help their colleagues. And, and that made us think within ING, so how can we make this bigger? How can we automate that? Uh, and almost, you know, make this part of our DNA and how we look at talent, at skill bases and at jobs. And actually, you know, what does that new approach look like in the banking industry? Yeah. You know, what is that new approach to learning and work look like, say, for the workforce of the future at ING or, or other banks? We're still experimenting. Eh? So, so let's be honest, because these are big, big moves. But, but what we actually look at is, OK, what are the, the skills people currently have and, and what are easy ways 
you know, within their own career aspirations to develop that too. And again, that can be upscaling or that can be rescaling and then prepare them for the future. Ensure that, you know, we learn them skills for jobs which will be there in three to five years. And I say three to five years because 10 years, you know, I cannot predict, predict what we, we, we need then. So it's step by step and then do that. So build learning journeys from the current skill set to the other skill set. Those learning journeys, there can be content, which of course digital can be delivered to them. But it's also getting experience. Yeah? So I, I really believe, and I know scientifically, the 70-20-10 has ne never been proven, but I'm still a big believer of it because I think at some point you have to start do a new job and then you see what you master and then you see what you still have to develop and then you learn it and you learn it by feedback from your colleagues and, and, and by mistakes and, and improving yourself. So, so, so for, for me, it's, it's that reskilling and, and then you know, in a couple of years, those people we can bring to the next platform. And I think what is, what is important, exactly what you say, jobs disappear. A lot of times we, we you know, make a big, big deal out of that. And it is because if you lose your job, that, that's, of course, an awful experience. But we don't talk about all those jobs which are, which are new. And on overall, if I look at the employment rates in, in the Netherlands, but Western Europe in general, it's quite stable. It's, a bit peak, but it's quite stable. So if 10% of the jobs disappear, 10% of the jobs will come somewhere else. And, and then the trick is to connect it to to connect it to and optimize your workforce to that. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, we, as HR professionals, we have a responsibility to help our workforces and understand that, you know, we need to be looking to the future, I guess, and understanding how our industry is going to change in the industry. But let's, let's take banking for an example. Understand the, the, the jobs or tasks that might be replaced and then and then help people, as you said, reskill and upskill in those areas. I mean, how do you actually do that, though? Let's say... Let's make it really practical. Let's say someone's got five skills. Two of those are likely to be either solely automated over the next three to five years. They've got three more skills. How do you how do you know? How do you how do you work out that they can they can easily acquire easily? They can acquire two other skills. Yeah, it's two things. You, you know, it's a bit self-assessment of the individual. Uh, that, that's one part, and and it's the feedback you you get on on, on someone. Uh, so I think for the the big populations, we, we use quite a lot of analytics to match the skill sets we see on one side to the skill sets we believe that they are still in the future. And, and you know, we have an analytics driving that, you know, really looking, you know, at the skills of job profiles and job profiles are just too generic. So you have to really narrow down, you know, what are the people doing? And then the input to those analytics, and then you probably know 10 times better than I do, you know, has to be real life data so people have to say okay what is it actually what i can do and what i like to do and what i'm good at and which skills are that and then the skills which there is a mismatch or they're not there yet we have to say are they learnable personally i believe the major the majority of, of of skills are learnable probably not everything but but quite a lot and i think we then put in time and there can be three months or six months where you can go to a to b and then you hope someone is at a normal performance level in that job within, you know, less than a year time because it will take some time. But it also depends on how big is the skill gap uh, and, and the step up in, in that direction. Uh, but it is personal input from the individual, the surroundings. And then I think on the future jobs, that's also we have to be crystal clear what we expect there. So the discussions with the business leaders on, you know, if we say banking becomes more digital, 
and part of the advice conversations you have are not face-to-face, -face, but are via screen or chat or in other ways. So what does it mean exactly for, for, for the skills level of the individual? And so you have to also have really good conversations with the business leaders. Okay, what do you expect then in the future? And I think HR can facilitate that journey, can ask the questions, but it's still the business leaders who have to put their vision there. And then we can help them to make that granular and, and, and drop to the skills level. When we come back in just a moment, Martin and I discuss our perspectives on the skills HR professionals need to develop for the future. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by TechWolf. TechWolf uses AI to identify skills. Why? Because companies who know their workforce's skills data are better equipped to face change. The best insight in skills wins. But how? Getting skills data used to be a long administrative process, not anymore. Thanks to TechWolf's breakthrough use of AI and natural language processing in particular, skills can now automatically be extracted from HR and non-HR data sources like HRIS, learning platforms, or project management tools. With TechWolf's connected skills API, you can get a fully automated and continuous overview of your people's evolving skills in less than eight weeks. To learn more, visit techwolf.ai. That's techwolf.ai. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Martin van Beck. HR Director for Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg at ING. Now, back to the conversation. And it's interesting, I mean, you're talking really about a very close partnership between HR and the business, and HR, obviously, you know, skills like business acumen, being a bit more comfortable with data, perhaps, than we've traditionally been in, in HR. You know, what are some of the skills that you're um, sort of building into your HR professionals in order that they can have those conversations effectively, take the understanding that they need, and then transfer that into some of the HR programs that you're delivering? Yeah, we, we put a lot of effort in the HR business partners in make them comfortable with data. First, you know, start to understand the data. And then after that, you know, giving their own interpretation. Because I said, well, if you put a dashboard in front of a business leader, why? You know, you, you should draw conclusions from that dashboard and then have the discussions with the business leader about what you see in that data. And what I notice, you know, in my whole career that a lot of HR people are a bit scared about data. And it always surprises me because I, I sometimes, you know, made a joke with, with our CFO where, you know, he puts in the finance data and there are a lot of assumptions behind those finance data. And every quarter they get adopted. You know, there is a different forecast. And then you, you put the, the finance data in front of the business leaders. And, you know, business leaders say, well, I don't recognize those data. And so there is a lot of discussion about the finance data. But still, finance is very comfortable to put data and have a discussion about the data. So I say to my HR people, I say, you know, we can do the same and we should do the same. And, and, you know, it won't be perfect. And having the discussion about the data is good. And if the business leaders don't recognize it, let's talk why they don't recognize it. What do they miss? What do they see differently? But what is not good is not doing it, not setting that first step. And so, you know, let's not be the, the Calimeros anymore on, 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 uh, on, on data, but, but really, you know, put it on the agenda, have the discussion, get feedback and improve. 
Yeah, as you said, it's it's probably a little bit a mixture of confidence. I think a lot of it is confidence yeah. and and sometimes capability. But as you sure. said, if you don't try and practice, then 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 you're not going to get then you're not going to get better. And and it's interesting actually. We've we've been doing some research recently into data driven organisations, and you know one of the things that that really came out is it's two things. Yes, you can help. HR professionals improve their capability by giving them training, allowing them to practice, as you say, you know, creating an environment where they can learn and fail sometimes uh, and get better. Um, and that is in combination with with delivering value through 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 people analytics as well. So you, you the, the business can see the value of the, of the data. But as you said, business leaders are used to receiving data on operations, on customers, on finance, and they run their businesses like that. So for them, it's probably less of a jump to to receive information about people that they can use to make decisions that, that drive the business forward as well. Yeah, I fully agree. You know, I think it's, it's really about all function. It's about HR. I think we are too reluctant to put it on the table. And if I see now, you know, what my team is, is doing step by step, uh, you know, I'm quite proud of. You know, we put much more data uh, there. We have forecasts. We combine data, you know. Um, sometimes the traditional the, the data like turnover, sick leave, but then you look into motivation, clarity of jobs, etc., and 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 you put different different buckets of data together. And you know my HRBPs get excellent support from our central people analytics team, and that helps eh? because you, those are the analysts. But then they have to make it real for their business domains and, and put it on the management teams. Yeah, they provide that that really important link between a central people analytics team and the business because usually a central people analytics team just generally is quite a small number of people. It might be might be five, might be ten, could even be fifty, but it's still quite small relative to the size of the organization. So the HR business partners are so important in the in the ecosystem, I guess, of, of people analytics. So uh um, I digress. We could probably talk about people analytics all day, but um, so we we talked a little bit about the experience of of the pandemic. How how you obviously you move people out of branches as they were as they were closed during the pandemic. You helped to, to upskill some of those people. Uh, I think you, it was no your customer. I think was the the, the, yeah. the KYC, um, and we talked about the examples of that. You know, what are some of the lessons that 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 you've learned as an organisation from the experience, and and are you planning to sustain? The fluid approach that you talked about um, more to the workforce moving forwards. Yeah, I think what we learned is is there is much more possible than we thought. I think what we also learned is um, sometimes it's or HR policies what are the limiting factor, or are, and I think we we stepped over that. Eh? So we we said, well, we we see now that we can combine skills. What can people do to what needs to be done much more easy, and how can we do that in a smart way? Yeah, so. We talked about, you know, is there something around a talent fluidity platform where you link to? Because at some point you have to automate it. ING is is a big organization. Um, so you cannot do that in Excel sheets. And you cannot do that based on good luck where people meet each other. So you have to automate it. Then, you know, logically or almost logically, you, you, you come to a platform or something which, which, which is platform-based where you say, okay, what are the skills what people have, you know, can you put your skills profile on there? Do you also know what skills you want to learn the coming years? And then, you know, look at jobs to be done. So work, which is there. And for me, that that is agile in the next level, because that is really managing your workforce in a demand-driven way, in a very flexible way. It also steps away from the old functions and jobs. And you could even say, well, if you could do that internationally, 
And again, there will be limitations with tax, social security, etc. But if you would do that internationally, you know, you even don't have to have the people will the skill sets who do the jobs in the same countries because we become working much more digital. So I see really for the future of work, but also for how we look at at work that there can be big, big shifts there. And are you looking at ways to obviously asking people what their skills are is 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 certainly one way of building that. Are you looking yeah. at ways to automatically collect what people's skills are as well? So by looking at all the data we've got in HR and and, and the business, for example, you know. I don't know, project descriptions, job roles, you know, performance system, all those sort of things. You're looking at, at bringing that data in and understanding skills from that perspective as well. Yeah, we, we do. And, you know, of course, you know, respecting all the data privacy, which is around there. But indeed, hey, you know, LinkedIn has data, resumes has data, performance reviews, past experience, uh, etc. And and then you have to come up with a couple of algorithms which predict then what jobs and skill sets will be very useful for these people in, in, in the future. And, and analytics can help there. Of course, you know, in the end, it, it's a person. It's a real person with real skills doing job eh, work which needs to be done. But I think at, at a macro level, you can much more influence that, but also help people. Because sometimes, you know, the example I gave from my sister, you know, going from one profession to another, Sometimes it's not for for everybody logic, okay, is that what, what I really can do? And I'm going to enjoy that. So sometimes you also have to, and data can do that, show, okay, based on the skills profile you have, these are five jobs. Did you think about it? And and with this job, you have a 80% skill match, which is a 60, and this is 30. So it's not impossible, but you have to reskill yourself a little bit more. I think that really gives people more guidance than we currently do. Because the old, you know, career ladders and, and career paths, you know, they will be outdated the moment you go to the second step. So uh, for me, it, it's connecting that and, and then give them real tools. Eh? So if you say, well, if you choose a job and there is a 60% skill, you know, overlap with your current one, 40% you have to learn, you know, what are the two, three learning interventions and learning journeys you have to take? And ideally, then the learning system comes in. And, and says you, okay, do you want to start now? Yeah, so I think the action is important. And from employees, it will ask a mind shift. Because I think we already in ING says, well, in ING, we want to make it possible, but you are the owner of your own development. You're the owner of your own career, but we want to make it possible. So we provide the training, provide the, the learning journeys, etc. But the mindset of the people have to, they have to really be, you know, Look at your own skills, go to other ones, and, and, and take that seriously. Yeah? Don't assure that in five years' time you are, you, you're looking at yourself and say, okay, I'm losing my job because I didn't invest in myself. Yeah? So we really have to help them to invest in themselves. And it's great. I think you, you, talk, you really struck on a really important point. It's that you know, if, as an employee, if I'm going to provide data or the company's going to collect data on me, um, you know, we've got ethics and privacy things that we need to adhere to. But actually, if we could provide a fair exchange of value, i.e. you give us your data and we'll provide you with information that helps you drive your career forward in ING, maybe give you training that you might be able to take your career elsewhere as well. Um, so we help you develop as a person by giving you personalized learning recommendation based on the skills you have, based on where you where you tell us you may want to take your career within the organization. As you said, great example. Uh, you're a data scientist working in in HR. 
that, that obviously you can be a data scientist working with customer data, with financial data as well. So, and it's what these technologies can do. I mean, uh, we've had a few guests on the show and it, uh, talking about this sort of stuff. And it really seems to be that traditionally HR has learning. It has career mobility. It has workforce planning. And all these things should be linked together, but they're not really always linked together. And it's almost like the data, the skills data can help link that together. So you can help the employee develop and acquire the skills that they need to develop their careers within the organization. But you can also close some of those skills gaps that you talked about earlier as the organization maybe goes more digital in, in, in certain areas as well. And that then helps you understand from an organizational perspective, okay, what's our build versus our buy philosophy when it comes to talent as well? So as, a, as an HR leader, that must give you, you know, a lot of comfort that you're developing people, but also helping the organization you know, from a, for an organizational sense, get closer to, to, to where they need to be around skills. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And so, you know, in ING, we, we define six capabilities for the future and, you know, on tech, on risk, uh, customer experience, where we say, well, we expect there will be jobs in those areas with, with skill sets behind it, uh, then defining the learning journeys. But what I really like what you said is that, you know, and indeed, you know, in HR and, you know, even after the Ulrich model, we, we still stuck to learning specialists, you know, all those. And we need that expertise, though, so don't get me wrong. But employees, I don't don't care. You know, they want to be developed. They want to make a career. And, and which HR, you know, stamp we put on that is completely ir- irrealistic. You know, that's all internal organization. So I think from HR, when we talk about talent and talent fluidity, we have to start thinking, okay, what are the journeys employees go through? And of course, all the experts can add value to those journeys, but we should avoid to have the learning journey. and the, yeah, the, the So I think there is a challenge for HR to start organizing themselves in a different way in that direction as well. Also in our ING, I think we, we make steps. We work agile, so we can put uh, in the squad, we can put different disciplines communications, uh, workday expertise, but also the experts where it's end-to-end in how you make something happen. Um, But it's a mindset. It's a mindset. Um, But I think if you want to have a great employee experience, you have to talk the language the employees talk and not your HR vocabulary. Yeah, as you said, it's an employee journey, isn't it? It's not a learning journey. It's not a mobility. It's it's an employee journey. And different HR programs feed in at different points. But Actually, most of the touch points that employee has, the moments that matter, as, as I've seen, are actually touch points outside the organization. And that's where your HR business partners, I guess, come in to work so closely with, with managers in the business to, to provide data around those, those, those moments that matter, but also to help guide managers um, around that. So, to, you know, there's enough data out there that suggests that if you provide a great employee experience, then it benefits, doesn't just benefit the employee, it, does, it benefits yeah. the organization and the customer, of course. And, uh, and I think we will benefit for the organization. Eh? So, you know, research says there will be a shortage on the labor market, you know, might be, might not be, because we're saying that already for long term. But I think continuous reskilling and upskilling, especially in the European context, where if you let people go, that's expensive, and then you hire new people. You know, that's not a business model which is all sustainable from, you know, a financial point of view, but also from a human point of view. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, so continue to look, okay, what are the skill sets we need for the next five years and start building people to that. That means that when people join the organization, you already have to shift the mindset. Eh? Say, well, uh, with trainees, you know, 
the youngsters joining the organization, you say, well, you start here and then you end in a board of directors or executive team. And, you know, I think now you have to say, well, every five years, you will reinvent yourself with your skill set. And if you do that in the right way, you will flow through the organization. And that can be a horizontal and vertical, because I also believe that, you know, what I see with, with the whole thing changing of work, managerial careers still will be there. But I think the expert careers become much, much more important. Um, and, and that also means that the experts have to reskill themselves even faster because the world around them is changing as well. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Martin, where we'll talk about measuring skills proficiency, as well as the business value and societal value of doing so. And I love what you were saying earlier, actually, around um, measuring skills proficiency on the job. So yes, you can go and do a course and everything else, but you don't really become proficient until you do it. I, I completely agree with that. You know, how do you go about measuring skill proficiency on the job? That would be interested to hear. I think the best example we have and, and, and is in our tech domains where we use the Dreyfus model, you know, old model by two brothers, which actually, you know, looks at proficiency. And, and there are five levels from a novice to a master. And at the master level, it's actually your peers at an international level recognize your skill set and invite you to speak about the work you're doing. And of course, in novice, you know, then you start learning, etc. And, you know, sometimes I look at that model and I think, well, that's not that different than what Rembrandt did in the Middle Ages, or it still stands. And, and I think that that is with a lot of things in HR, you know, the basic of our work didn't change at all. We can automate it, we can put data there, we have to make it measurable. But, but a lot of, of the old stuff is still good, but we have to use it in a different way. But I think, it, so really getting the peer review on the quality of the work and, and the skills, I think, is important. I think you can extrapolate that to quite a lot of functions. Uh, in tech, because it's the majority is about the quality of coding, uh, it, it seems to be easier. I said it seems, but I think a lot of professions, including HR, if you cannot make it that tangible, as our tech friends can do, you also sometimes have to doubt what is the added value of their job. Yeah, because if you cannot make it measurable, it's quite, it becomes quite interesting. Uh, so I think, we, you know, in tech, we do really good job there. I think other disciplines, we're experimenting with it, goes well. But I think we have to learn something as well as ING in this uh, perspective. It's quite interesting. We had um, Professor Rob Cross on the show um, a couple of episodes ago. And he's, I don't know how much you know his work, but it's all about organizational network analysis. And, you know, obviously you can do that on a passive basis by looking at communication, things like email and, and see see who connects with who most often. But he was talking about understanding who are the key people within an organization, influencers perhaps, may not always be senior leaders. When you come to a transformation or, or to understand who people go to, which I guess talks nicely to your proficiency thing, where 
you know, you can actually ask people, well, if you've got a problem to solve on this, who do you go to? And, and then you can find out who those people are. Um, and sometimes they're not always the people that the organization necessarily expects. And, you know, it's particularly in a big organization like ING. So it's, it is interesting how things are, it, things are sort of progressing around that as well. And um, obviously now that we can look at things like who people send emails to, how quickly they open, who people connect with, both within a team, but also between teams as well. We can start to see who, who are the people that connect people within an organization as well. And again, of course, we need to look at that data carefully and use it in the right way so that it provides benefit to, to the people themselves. But yeah, fascinating how things are, are developing. Um, so in terms of, of that approach around measuring that skills proficiency on the job, you know, what are some of the benefits of that approach to, to the organization? So we can talk about ING as an example. You might maybe talk about organizations holistically. Um, I think to take it broader, because I think that the challenges other organizations have will be similar or quite similar than ING has, but I think make it measurable makes it also much more transparent. I, I think the transparency about you know, performance management and other HR processes we have, there's sometimes a lack. So, so what is good performance? And I think the moment you can measure skills better and at which level those skills are, uh, are shown, uh, I think it, it helps. And it, 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 it un mystifies a lot of HR things. And I think that is, is you know, in, in 2021, I think that the world is becoming transparent where HR sometimes can be a black box. And I think demystifying that and taking it out of the, the black box is good for the function. It's really good for the function. Uh, but it also helps the people because then for the people, it's clear in which direction you can improve, you can develop, and you can perform. Um, from an organization point of view, I think when people know that, you get energy around it. Eh? So we, we didn't discuss that that much. But I think when people are responsible for their own career, an organization creates a context where they can develop, the time is there and the tools are there, uh, you know, people get energetic. You know, it's it's clear where they're going to go because people sometimes now hold, hold on to what they currently do because they're afraid for the future. And why are they afraid? Because we don't tell them how that future looks like. We don't tell them how they can fit in that future. And, and, and so, and then they hold on and we want them to move as HR professionals. We want them to progress. But so I think more transparency about how that future looks like, which skills are relevant, which are not relevant. Be honest with them. How easy is it for those people to go from A to B? How easy it is to upskill? You know, and is that in ING or is it in your current organization or is it outside? Both is good as long as you help people to go there and assure there is a next career step in the organization or another organization. And I think those discussions have to take place much more. And, and that also means that, you know, and that's deliberately why I say you probably have to upskill yourself five, six times in a career. And it might be 10, 10 times. I don't know. But I think the majority of, of the employees understand that the management of an organization doesn't have a glass ball and you don't know how it looks in 10 years. Everybody knows that. But I think five years is realistic. Yeah, so if we don't know where we are in five years, then it's probably not good management. So five years, we know. So have that conversation and then say, guys, in three to five years, we will look what the next step is. That makes sense and that you know you can oversee from a horizon point of view, but have those transparent conversations and demystify the whole thing. And, and then I think if you create that, you create energy in the organization. 
and you probably and you create trust as well that transparency sure. um you know by using data to help people um that their careers as you said being realistic about how long it's going to take them so i think that's that's really clear and and, and as you said you can only really i agree look three to five years maybe in some industries you can look a bit longer some some industries probably frankly a bit less to be honest at the moment um and as you said making that transparent is is helpful for the people and the organization and thinking more even even more broadly what about on a on a societal level this approach yeah it's an interesting question and, and you know I said in the beginning of the call, you know, I'm in the HR director in ING, but, you know, besides that, I do a couple of, uh, of, of board of director functions. And one of them is with a refugee organization. And, and what surprises or what surprises me is that what I see there is, you know, today with Afghanistan, it becomes crystal clear again. People have to leave their homes and their loved ones, and hopefully the loved ones can, you know, escape the country with them. Uh, but you don't bring your diplomas with you and, and, and the heritage. You, you come to another country. I think for a lot of res- res- uh, refugees, there is work in, in other countries. Uh, but then you can look at the skills level. Yeah, so you can look, okay, what, what were you doing from the country? You, yeah, it can be Africa, it can be Asia, it can be anywhere. So what were you doing there? And, and how can we use those skills? And how can you build a meaningful life uh, in another uh, other country without you know, having used discussions about, you know, what are the diplomas, et cetera, which you, you had in the past. Um, and, and sometimes people show diplomas and you don't know the universities because, you know, I know a couple of universities, also international, but not all of them. Um, and, and the quality of those goes up, up, up and down as well. So I think you, by looking at skills and what people really can do and the proficiency around it, you create more honesty on the global labor market. Uh, not only for people, you know, refugees, but also people who didn't have the opportunity to go to college and to go to university and do a bachelor degree because they were born in a, in a family where it was not common, but they have good skills. Yeah, so I remember when I was an HR director earlier in my career in uh, factory of Asian food was quite some, uh, you know, we, we needed engineers for the factory. And in that area of the Netherlands around Amsterdam, where a lot of people who didn't have education in a diploma form, but they took their whole car apart and they put them together again. So they had skills which were very useful. They just didn't have a diploma. And so what we did at some point was that we just invited them and we asked them to perform the job. So we didn't have a job interview. We said, well, this is what you have to do technically. And then if they could do it, um, we hired them. Because in the end, that's what you want, that people can do the job. A diploma or a resume can be evidence that someone can do it, but it's not real evidence. Real evidence is doing the job. So I think for having a more honest labor market uh, and really ensure that people who don't have always the chances to you know, go to college, go to university, have education, or don't want to, that's possible as well, that they can have similar jobs or even really great jobs as other people can. So. I think for society, there are really benefits, a lot of benefits for a lot of people there. Yeah. And if we think about Europe, I mean, unemployment is relatively steady, but we're also aging populations. Most of the major European economies have got aging populations. And, you know, I think countries like Germany, for example, they potentially will have a labor shortage in 10, 15 years time. So it's so important that as, you know, as refugees come and let's not forget they're coming because they have to a lot of the time, you know, they don't have a choice. Um, You know, if we can help 
help them understand their skills and integrate into into companies and that that's gonna that, that that doesn't benefit doesn't just benefit them which is great for them great for society but it actually benefits us as as organizations it benefits our economies as well so it's you know again skills is this um magic uh, the magic word the magic, magic word, word at the moment isn't it <laughs> that, that, that the potentially i won't say it will solve all our ills but it will certainly go some way to to, to helping that really um last question uh, martin i really enjoyed our, our discussion on, on the podcast you know bringing this all together how can and this is the question we're asking uh, everyone on this on this series how can hr help the business identify the, the critical skills of the future i think it is is asking the, the business questions and questions so really ask them you know if you talk about digital banking what do you mean how does it look like what what is someone actually doing where is someone sitting what are the conversations? So really asking the questions, 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 because questions give answers and then you go a level deeper. Also be honest on, we can look three to five years ahead. So, so don't think we're going to solve the issues for 2040 or 50. That's too far away. So keep it relatively close and, and see that against a journey. Because upgrading to one skills level will make us capable to go to the other one. But if we start thinking 2050, we all look, well, we don't know. And then you, you end with nothing. So make it practical on the one hand, because I think that that gives much more execution certainty. But asking the questions and, and be brutally honest and say, well, do you really see that? Or is that not possible? And the pandemic is, is I think, a great example in a lot of things we, we thought were not possible, you know, running a bank from home offices. Um, and, and a lot of other corporations did the same. Um, they are possible. So challenging our own paradigms on, on, on what can be done from, from, from both angles. You know, it should be good for business. It should be good for people. And it also should be good for society. And as you said, it's, it starts with the business questions, isn't it? And drilling down, once you've got information, drill down, making it practical, bringing data to the conversation. You know, um, once you've understood the business questions at the level, understanding the data that can support and help answer those conversations enabling people, enabling employees within the organizations to then develop those, um, potentially those skills as well, and close some of those gaps that undoubtedly you'll find as, as things progress so fast. Martin, thank you very much for, for being a guest on the Digital Lead, HR Leaders podcast. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and follow you on social media if you do social media? <laughs> I, I do a bit. So I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. So I think LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, just type my name and you can find me. And thanks for having the conversation, uh, David. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, I, and I'm, I know listeners will as well, because the topics that we covered, I think, are topics that resonate with a lot of HR professionals today, perhaps not surprisingly. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, yeah, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. That brings us to the end of Season 16 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Join us next week as we kick off Series 17, speaking to Peter Manikariba, Head of Learning and Analytics at Novo Nordisk. Until then, stay safe, stay well and take care.